0: This is Midday Magazine for Friday, June 9th. I'm Shelby Herbert. The National Marine Fisheries Service hasn't ruled out the possibility of opening the summer troll season for King Salmon in southeast Alaska, despite a federal judge's recent ruling to the contrary. During a meeting held Wednesday in Sitka, NOAA's Regional Fisheries Administrator for Alaska, John Kurland, told a roomful of trollers that the agency was working hard to correct the problems identified in a federal lawsuit brought by a conservation group in Washington state. If successful, southeast trollers might be able to harvest king salmon this summer. If not on the traditional date of July 1st, then possibly in August. Robert Woolsey reports from Sitka.
1: To get a feel for the impact of the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit on Southeast Trollers, try sitting in a room filled with them. Grizzled oldsters, seasoned men and women hardened by life on the ocean, well-known fisheries advocates, young families, and a baby or two. John Kurland is the Regional Administrator for Fisheries in the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, which, among other agencies, oversees the National Marine Fisheries Service. That's a lengthy title, but Curlin said that he is a neighbor, and he gets it.
2: First off, I know that there's been just a huge amount of concern uh, about uh, the implications of this suit and the potential for the troll fishery not to be able to open. Um, I I live in Juneau. Um, I have a sense of how important this fishery is for uh, southeast Alaska, for a lot of small businesses, a lot of families, a lot of communities. Um, it's a big deal. The Washington State-based Wild Fish Conservancy sued the National
1: Marine Fisheries Service in federal court in 2020, arguing that nymphs had violated the Endangered Species Act by failing to fully account for the impact of southeast trolling on king salmon, an important prey for a small population of endangered orcas in Puget Sound called Southern Resident Killer Whales. The Conservancy won And a judge ordered Southeast Alaska king salmon trolling shut down until the problem could be remedied. And it's just commercial trolling for Chinook in Southeast Alaska. No other commercial or sport fishery anywhere from Alaska to California is affected. It's a baffling strategy, and Kerland is as surprised as anyone that the suit got this far.
2: We're all sort of incredulous that this suit is focusing on southeast Alaska fisheries when um, there are a lot bigger threats that southern resident killer whales are facing than than what's happening in these fisheries. The southeast Alaska fisheries are a really small contributor to the challenges that southern resident killer whales face in their recovery. But uh, anyway, it is what it is. Curland explained the nuts and bolts of the lawsuit, which were already
1: known to many in the standing room-only crowd in Sitka's Harrigan Centennial Hall. How it stemmed from a 2019 biological opinion prepared by NIMFs and the associated incidental take statement required to conduct a fishery that could affect an endangered species. He then took questions, some tough questions. Deborah Lyons is the representative from the Alaska Trollers Association to the Pacific Salmon Treaty. She wondered how the National Marine Fisheries Service could be outflanked by a nonprofit conservation organization on a question of environmental policy. So when I look at what happened in Washington, NIMS, who are the experts on fisheries, issued an opinion that said the southeast fishery, yes, takes some threatened salmon and takes some salmon that are prey of an endangered whale, but in the opinion of National Marine Fisheries Service, it was not a significant threat to any of those species. And yet a group was allowed to appeal to a judge and provide hand-selected bits of data that the judge found more compelling than the opinion of the agency, the federal agency, that's supposed to render these decisions. Now, how does that happen? Curlin responded that the Endangered Species Act has a provision that allows any citizen to bring suit, and that's what the Wild Fish Conservancy did. Although the National Marine Fisheries Service has appealed to the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and asked for a decision in June, it's unlikely that the court would act so fast. Instead, Curland, without giving away too much legal strategy, said NIMS had one trump card it could play.
2: The agency has the authority under the Endangered Species Act to issue a new biological opinion and a new incidental take statement. Um, It could be reviewed by the court. The court doesn't need to approve it up up front, uh, but... Um, it's certainly possible that the plaintiffs will take issue with whatever we, whatever we put out um, and will ask the court to review it. Uh, but there is no, no uh, implicit requirement or, or explicit requirement for the court to approve it before it takes effect.
1: This prompted troller Robert Bateman to drill down.
3: It's my understanding that once the ITS and the new buy has been written, and correct me if I'm wrong. You can basically put that in effect straight away. Now, if that didn't happen before July 1st, could we maybe go fishing in August still?
2: So your question is, if we are not able to get the new incidental take coverage in place by July 1st, but we get it in later, could there be an opening later in the season? Yes.
1: Kerland was joined at the meeting by an attorney from the U.S. Department of Justice, which is representing the National Marine Fisheries Service, Curland explained that the DOJ stepped in any time someone sues the government, and, he said, I get sued all the time. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey.
0: Rescue divers have recovered a fourth body from the scene of a charter fishing accident that happened over Memorial Day weekend. Yesterday morning, Alaska state troopers reported that salvage crews working to recover the outboard motors from the wrecked vessel spotted the body near Low Island. At 11 a.m., divers recovered the body of the boat's captain, 32-year-old Morgan Robidoux. Robidoux is the fourth deceased person recovered from the scene of the accident since the search began on May 28th, after Kingfisher Charters notified the Coast Guard that one of their boats was overdue. The body of 57-year-old Mari Akawili was covered, recovered from the scene on May 28th near the vessel. His, his wife, 30, 53-year-old Danielle Akawili, and her sister, 56-year-old Brandy Chow, were recovered from the boat three days later. The last passenger, 61-year-old Robert Sulis, still hasn't been found. Rabidu's body will be sent to the state medical examiner's office for an autopsy. His next of kin have been notified. The Coast Guard continues to investigate the circumstances surrounding the accident. The Polynesian Voyaging Society has docked their canoe, Hakulea, in Haines. The canoe is at the center of a cultural renaissance for the indigenous seafaring nations of the Pacific. Alain de Prémeny spoke with crew member Moani Himuli about traditional navigation.
3: Moani Himuli started sailing traditional canoes in Hawaii when she was 15. She is now a boat builder, teaches sailing, and captain de Hokulea, a 60-foot double-hulled voyaging canoe, on its latest trip from Huna to Haines. The Hokulea has been central to the Polynesian Voyaging Society's work in reviving traditional knowledge.
4: Non-instrument navigation was once a lost art form to the Hawaiian people, and it took a man by the name of P.S. Mau Piailug from Satoa, Micronesia. We call him Mau, or Papa Mau, and just so happened he was in Hawaii at the time when Hokulea was being built.
3: The Hokule'a was built at the time of the Hawaiian Renaissance.
4: That was a time of our language being brought back into schools called Ahaputanaleo. So our little babies are now starting to learn their culture and their language again. And Hokule'a was built to really fill that void of the seafarers and prove that Polynesian people knew how to navigate, knew how to wayfind, and we voyaged and we traveled with purpose.
3: There was a theory that Pacific Islands had been populated by people drifting aimlessly through the ocean. Heimuli says Papa Mao connected with the Polynesian Voyaging Society and translated the knowledge he had learned at home into Hawaiian. He translated the compass.
4: It's just a star compass. It's 360 degrees, four cardinal points, Akao hemo hikina komohana. And in between those points, are seven star houses. I'm going to get really complex on you. <laughs> uh, so each star house is 11 and a quarter degrees. Those star houses, they each have the same names in each quadrant. So la, aina, noyo, hey manu, nalani, naleo,
3: haka. Muli says the canoe is the center of the compass, and the horizon is its edge.
4: That is our whole compass. And if you look on the canoe, we actually have markings for each house. So a navigator will sit at a certain point in the canoe, and you can use the lines that are pointed out to know the different houses and watch, really watch stars rise out of the sky or set into the horizon.
3: This system's reference points are different from those of modern navigation.
4: When we start to learn navigation, we're taught that The canoe never moves. The island is pulled to you. So you have to really use your imagination and how these things, but really trust in what our kupuna or our our teachers have taught us over the generations.
3: In the morning, when the stars fade, navigators observe the swell. Haimuli says the two most important times for a navigator are sunrise and sunset. This is the time to calibrate the direction of the boat in relation to the swell.
4: So the swells are constant. It takes a long time for a swell to change, but there's always going to be that one constant swell, which is the trade swell that we get in Hawaii. So we memorize the feeling of the canoe at that point and the swell and what direction the swell is coming from.
3: Knowing the direction you are traveling is good, but how do you find islands in the great wide ocean?
4: There are signs. Um, When you look at clouds, clouds tend to gather up over islands. Uh, We also use birds. So in Hawaii, uh, we've got a bunch of different type of birds that will just fly out to sea in the morning. They'll feed and then they'll come back in the evening to feed their babies. So we'll watch for those birds because we know if that bird's going out in the morning, we don't want to follow it. But as soon as it turns afternoon time and we see that bird flying a particular way, we're going to know, okay, that bird is going to go home and feed its babies. So we're going to watch that bird. Heimuli says some marine life can indicate the canoe's position. There's a particular pod of dolphins um, around the equator, and we'll know, okay. It's really interesting to see it, the water just starts boiling, and it's just huge pods of dolphins. Yeah,
3: So we know that they're around the same spot every time we sail. Heimuli says she is thrilled to see how traditional navigation skills are now being taught in schools. Hawaii now has a fleet of eight ocean-going canoes. Many other nations are building traditional canoes and teaching the skills. It's
4: really amazing, and, you know, we have to keep doing it. Because if we stop traveling, then we stop visiting our cousins, you know, all around the world. But then also the teaching ends right there with us, right? So we need to keep on teaching.
3: The Hokalia and its crew will be in Haines until Saturday. They will then leave for Juneau and on to a four-year voyage around the Pacific. For KHNS, I'm Alan DePrimanil.
0: People in Juneau who run Airbnbs or other short-term rentals are required to pay sales tax and a hotel bed tax to the city. But as the number of rentals continues to go up, the city needs a way to keep track of who's paying and who isn't. As Katie Anastas reports from Juno owners may soon have to register their short-term rentals with the city.
5: The registration program would assign a unique number to each short-term rental. Owners would have to include that number in their online listings. Deputy City Manager Robert Barr says it would help the city collect sales tax and have a clearer picture of the market.
2: And since most of those advertisements happen over online short-term rental platforms like Airbnb and VRBO, that enables us to have a more comprehensive understanding of short-term rental activity in Juneau.
5: The Assembly will vote on whether to create a registration program next week. They've already started discussing other ways they could curb the increase in short-term rentals, which can leave long-term renters with fewer, more expensive housing options. Other communities provide some examples. Sitka requires short-term rental owners to live on the property for half of the year. Wasilla issues just 75 short-term rental permits per year, and one property owner can have up to three permits. At a meeting on Monday, Juno Assembly member Alicia Hughes Gandis expressed interest in some of those measures.
4: I'd be interested to see what something like limiting it to your primary residence uh limitations on the number that an individual could operate if even if we didn't have a borough
5: wide cap member wade bryson urged the assembly to be cautious
2: i agree that we are going down a correct path we need to register short-term rentals we need to make sure that they're not uh, literally displacing our residents but i would like to remind everybody that we are about to begin on a process of telling what people what they can do with their property and that is a big deal
5: Barr says the registration program likely won't yield useful data until it's been running for a year or more. But he told the Assembly it's a good first step in understanding the growing short-term rental market in Juneau.
2: As more people get into that particular market and business uh, regulation becomes more painful for more people, the longer you wait to do it.
5: If approved, the registration program would begin in July. In Juneau, and Katie Anastas.